the skunk at the party. Like, and, and most people <laughs> rather wouldn't be, you know, they'll just, right. they'll just yeah. save themselves the trouble. Well, that's a great, great, like, I think that's so perfect for you, Lee, because I feel like you are the skunk of social psychology. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Inslicht. Mickey, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. It's uh, I, I feel it's been like a couple of years since we've recorded an episode. It's been... Uh, I, I, has it felt that long for you, Yoel? It has. It has. I've missed seeing your smiling face every two weeks. Um, you know, I understand why you wanted to go to this monthly schedule and I don't want to push, but uh, I'm getting a little lonely over here. <laughs> I don't mind the monthly schedule, but uh, but it, I don't know. It just feels like it's been longer than a month, but uh, what are you going to do? Um, you know, SPSB, this is, the, the Conference for the Society for Personality and Social Psychology just passed, uh, and I think you attended some events. Uh, wh- what did you think? Uh, I only organized a pre-conference. Um, so I, I went to that and I, I liked it, but then I had a hand in inviting all the speakers. So I, I kind of would have had to, um, I didn't, I meant to go see my grad student Nina's talk. I hear it was great, but I completely spaced on it. I just have a problem like remembering to do stuff when I'm just in my house all the time, you know, it's like, I need to be in a location in order to remember to do a thing. Uh, how was yours? Yeah. You know, it was, I think the best word to describe it is meh. You know, like, so there was a pre-conference, a tech pre-conference that I loved. I thought that was great. I learned lots of new stuff. But, you know, like, I just, I, I, for me, a conference is about the people and, and seeing people and, and, and networking with them and chatting with them and catching up. And, like, I tried to recreate that a little bit, but it was really challenging. And, yeah, at the end of the day, I'm, st- I'm in my bedroom the entire, you know, four or five days of this thing, which is no different than any other day. Um, so it just was anticlimactic and, and not so much fun, at least for me. There you go. Um, so, I, yeah, I should I shouldn't keep our listeners in suspense any longer. Instead, I should just go ahead and introduce our guest. Um, we're very excited today to have uh, Lee Jessam. Uh, he's chair and distinguished professor in the Department of Psychology at Rutgers University. He received his PhD from the University of Michigan in 1987, and ever since he has been at Rutgers, where he has published over 100 articles and chapters with prominent topics being social perception and stereotyping. Lee, welcome so much to the show. That's great to be here. So first, uh, I, I always want to dive right into the questions, but Mickey has scolded me enough about not asking what we're drinking that I now remember to do it. <laughs> it just took like a couple of years. So let's let's talk about what we're drinking. Mickey, you want to go first? Sure. I've been, uh, I've been saving these. You know, uh, Lee is a special guest. I am really excited that you're going to be on here because Lee, you already know you're infamous. So, you know, for good and bad, depending on your, on your, uh, uh, your perspective. So I, I saved some special beer for you. Um, so I'm drinking something. It's a, a collaboration between Bellwoods Brewery and uh, this other brewery called you know, I'm wearing contacts. And I cannot actually see what it is. The lettering is too small. Wait, hold on. Let me see. Wakefield Brewing. It's called Wakefield Brewing. Um, and uh, the beer is called Six Days in Dade. It's an imperial goes uh, with guava, peach, apricot, lactose, and salt. Um, so anyhow, it's uh, really sunny. I guess Dade County is supposed to be like, you know, pink and blue, uh, Florida colors. Uh, so, you know, it's the heart of winter here. So, uh 
it's a nice reminder that uh, in the flip side, we'll be we'll be sweating and hot. So I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Lee, what about you? So uh, I uh, had to really think this beer thing through because uh, if I drank two beers, I wouldn't make it through half the uh, half the program. So, you know, it's it, it, it's late enough and stuff. So one of the things I started doing about 15 years ago um, after a trip to Mexico, uh, I think that's where we discovered it. You know, in Mexico, there's like really good craft tequila. You, know, it's, you can't get a lot of it in the States. It's kind of like the craft beers in Germany. And... I would spike a cup of coffee with a little bit of tequila and it just gives the coffee this richness that it doesn't get anywhere else. So I have a cup of coffee here spiked with my Avion Anejo, uh, which I only just discovered. And uh, it is exactly what I hoped it would be. Wow. That sounds awesome. I think you're the first guest to do this poor man's speedball. Um, Of course, you're breaking new ground uh, and I salute that. But not not the not the first guest to do uh, well shots. We've we've had some shots before. You know, Lee. If you were going to shoot that, I might join you. But you're you're mixing it with coffee, and I I got to go to bed soon. Yeah, and, and and good tequila. You shouldn't do shots of anyway. That's sort of that's offensive. I would consider it to be a microaggression, actually, Mickey. So watch it. Um, okay. So finally, my drink is boring. Um, I'm still on the bourbon. I'm kind of on a beer boycott. Uh, recently uh this is this is makers it's good wait wait so, hold on hold on i have to yeah. get, I, it's a must part of the show is i have to give you all shit each time wait what do you mean you're on a, a beer uh boycott what, what's what's up with that what, no that's just accidental i just haven't been drinking any beer i just never feel like drinking beer it's either wine or liquor <laughs> usually that's way more boring than a boycott i thought it was yeah, like intentional yeah no well i'll i'll come up with a good reason to boycott for like next next month's episode but uh for now you'll just have to live with the fact that i kind of felt like drinking bourbon is like not an interesting reason at all all right that's uh, you know I'm, I'm used to your uh to your your disregard of the rules and it, i still love you it's all good uh thank you man all right well chill cheers gentlemen cheers cheers, cheers. So, you know, I think you all and I know uh, bits and pieces of, of your backstory, um, but you do have an unusual background for a social psychologist. Um, you know, I, on Twitter, I, I've learned, for example, you grew up in public housing, your mother died when you were young, um, and uh, you, you know, may pretty much raised yourself after the age of 13. Um, but you ended up a professor, a distinguished professor at Rutgers of psychology. So can you tell us about your backstory a little bit and, and how maybe, you know, your, your path to to academia, but also how your early years influenced you and your work? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's going to be hard for me to keep this short, but uh, I hated school. I mean, I hated school. I, I mean, I, you know, I'm not sure I can capture the death, depth of the, my visceral hatred of junior high and high school. Elementary school, not so much. Like, I really saw myself as there, as it was an oppressive system, and I was there to undermine it without getting expelled. It's interesting because some might say you haven't changed. <laughs> I know, that's right. <laughs> you know, when you look at the sort of the arc of my career, uh, it, is, <laughs> it was foreshadowed by my early experiences in high school. And... You know, I went to college, dropped out, went back, dropped out, dropped out for years, eventually. Um, and then I met Lisa, who would eventually become my wife. 
And she was like, go back to school. You're like wasting your life. And, uh, you know, I, I hated, I mean, I hated college also. So, uh, you know, it was a struggle for me to wrap my brain around going back. And after dropping out, you know, I'm working these stupid jobs. I'm not making much money and stuff. You know, I go back, you know, not because I had any intrinsic, the concept of going to school because you were intrinsically interested in the material was not in my universe. Like it was just like, that's, there's no, it just wasn't, it wasn't thinkable. But so she did eventually convince me to go back. Um, and what she convinced me and what sort of put me over the top was like, okay, these are dead end jobs. And I think this is probably true for a lot of the kids who go to school is you want a job. You want a decent job. You want a professional job. You want the certification that comes with a BA or an advanced degree. And everything else is just putting in your time in order to get the certification, you know, so that you can get a job. So as you, as you know, uh, um, one of the things that inspired this gathering now is my, you know, I, I listened to your prior episode. I mean, I listened to a lot of your prior episodes, but the one in particular I'm referring to is the one titled Against Academia. Um, and that I was surprised by the content because it wasn't really against academia. It was kind of a measured consideration of the pros and cons of academic jobs. Okay. So, so, I, you know, I, I go, I go back to school and I assume the sit when I first go back, I decide to take a really light load because I had been out of school for such a long time. You know, I figured, you know, I didn't want to be competing against these like middle class, you know, today we would call them privileged kids, um, uh, you know, with all the advantages and mommy and daddy paying for school. I mean, I was paying my way for everything. So none of that was going to happen for me. So I was working, I was working almost full time. So, but I also figured I had seen enough of bad university bureaucracies that I assumed the bureaucracy was, you know, not an animate object, but for all practical purposes out to get me. So, so that I would register, I registered for three courses and I figured, okay, even though I think I did everything right, they're going to kick me out of at least two of them. Cause like they do that. I mean, at Rutgers it's called being deregistered. So this was not a completely paranoid thing. And at that point, I figured I would be like all but wasting my time. I wasn't there to go part time. So I registered for an overload, actually, or, or a, the max I could register for. And the, the first three courses were courses that were just practical. They were just like, you know, economics, uh, the, some distribution requirement. I figured I would go into business or something, make money. OK. And then I had to figure out what I was going to do for an overload. And overload compared to the three, which was 12 credits. Um, and the thing I despised least in college had been psychology. But I'm phrasing that exactly. I mean, I hated it. I just didn't hate it as much as I hated everything else. <laughs> so, so I took two psych endorsements. <laughs> yeah, well, so, so I took two psych courses, figuring I would drop one or both. And really what happened is one was a social psych class. One was a learning and memory class. Both were taught by, you know, not charismatic professors. And I loved the material. I just loved it. 
It was like, this was like, it, what, what kind of world have I entered here? I, I mean, it was just that kind of experience. And it was like especially um, poignant because neither were like unusually good teachers. And one was like sort of droned on with a monotone. And I still love the stuff. And the only thing that, that, you know, the path at which I ended up taking to become a social psychologist rather than a, um, say, a cognitive psychologist or a learning and memory or a perception person was that the social psychologist, you know, this is a common path, right? Had openings in his lab for undergraduate RAs. And I started working with the guy. And, you know, and I love doing that, that also. Then I got a sort of work-study support. So I was kind of working for him work-study as well. And he asked me to do an honors thesis. And the honors thesis was great. It was brutally difficult. God, I sweat bullets on that thing. And it was it. I was just done at that point. I was completely done. Done as in, like, fell in love with the... the yeah, design. completely in love with it. Yes. That, that's sort of how I got here. And, you know, one of, Bill Van Hippel is one of the people who I overlap with in graduate school. Um, and he loves to tell the story. So he was a couple of years behind me. Um, but both of us, I had Bob Zients on my committees, and I think he did also. And as he tells it, so I was not there for this, uh, but as he tells it, Zients referring to him and me, um, said one of us had never been socialized and the other had been socialized but rejected it. <laughs> <And then, laughs> who is who? Well, yeah, that's, uh, that's I, I think we, we, I think we have eventually come around to agreeing on who's who, but, but it was a topic of some controversy for quite a while. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, this is funny. I, you know, I had in some ways a really similar experience of um, coming to UC Berkeley, not really knowing what I wanted to do. Now, I was less under the gun than you were as far as like picking something, you know, lucrative or practical. So I was just kind of shopping around. I took like astronomy. I took chemistry. I took like a bunch of stuff. And I took this intro psych course. And I feel bad like this dude. He's probably long dead, actually, because he was old then. And this was a while ago. He, he was not, I, I don't know, like, you know, they at Yale, they have Paul Bloom teaching intro. This dude was not Paul Bloom. You know, he was not really, he didn't seem very excited about the material. He just didn't seem very excited about it, period, about anything. And still, I was like, man, this material is great. And I know I'm not being dazzled by this, like, charismatic. You know, if you, if you, like, take a course from Paul Bloom, if he can teach accounting 101 and make it seem amazing, right? And 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 this guy was definitely not with the razzle-dazzle. But I was like, God, this material is just so yeah. awesome. Yeah. Especially from my background. Like, you know, how was I going to pay for law school or medical school or anything? You know, I just like, not that I wanted to do those things, but it was just that, you know, I really, I'm going to incur, you know, in modern dollars, $300,000 worth of debt. And then you hear you could be paid to go to graduate school in, in a scientific version and a research-oriented psych program. It's like, oh, my God. And then the whole tenure thing, it's like, yes, I get it. It's going to be hard to get tenure. But once you get tenure, it's like they more or less can't fire you unless you do something, like, really illicit or unethical. It's like, oh, my God, this is like, what a gig. Like, especially coming from the massive insecurity that I grew up with. This was like, and, and... Like, what other skills did I have? It's not like, you know, I wasn't like, you know, a whiz at sales or, or, or engineering or, or, you know, I didn't really love biology. I just like, didn't really have any, like, obviously marketable skills. My marketable skill was that I was kind of like, you know, book smart. 
that that was my you know I did good on tests you know I could learn stuff reasonably quick you know I was kind of broad like like I was pretty good at math I was pretty good at writing I wasn't actually amazing at any of those things but but it's like okay and they're gonna pay me to do they're gonna they're gonna pay me to go to school and they're gonna give then you know if things work out I'm gonna have a job and maybe a job for life it's like this is amazing this is why you're your first against academia on the pros and cons of it as a job. Now, things are different now. It is much more, everything about it is much more difficult now than it was even, it was not easy then, but it was, it's, it's more difficult now. But, you know, you, I can tolerate a high level of stress and difficulty and work for, you know, an intensely valuable goal. And that's how I saw it. And once you had that, it's like no corporate, no, you know, it's just I'm done. And it's not like I was looking to be tenured and just sit on my butt all the time, but just like not having the anxiety of being fired. It was it was just it was this was and they're going to pay me to basically like be smart. This is like great. It's completely great. So you've brought up our Against Academia uh, episode already. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's funny now that you've told this inspiring story about how, you know, you came back uh, to university, um, you really, like, fell in love with the material, decided that, like, the life of the mind was for you. And your criticism of our Against Academia episode, as I understand it, was that we were not, you know, against <laughs> academia enough, right? Um, you're very nice about it, but you basically said we're excessively positive. So, so maybe you can tell our listeners what you think that we got wrong in that episode. Well, it's not. It wasn't that I actually thought you got anything wrong. I, it was just that I didn't, um, I didn't hear the episode as being against academia. You know, so it just it, there was a, a, a you know, a, a, an episode titled "Against Academia." You know, might have had both a critique of and a defense of academia itself. Whereas the life course of being or not being an academic is an important question. I like, I'm not, you know, I don't think that was a bad episode. It was just not what I thought it was going to be, you know? And, and I, you know, the first thing I mean, I like, I, I love this job. I totally love this job. The job probably worked out better than I anticipated when I was an undergraduate saying, Oh my God, this path looks amazing. So in that sense, as a job with the, you know, yes, the hard work, but then you actually do get the security. Rutgers has been really a, a, a really good place to work, actually, um, uh, for a long time. One of the things that there were lots of things that made it a really good place to work. But one was that there were regular merit raises, which even at R1s, you don't often have that. And those are mostly decided by at the department level, like the department formally makes recommendations, but those recommendations are almost always followed. And my peers, you know, however much other times we might have conflicts and infighting and about this and that, when it came to rewarding people based on merit, whether it was for promotions or these merit raises, were unbelievably fair. Like, I, you know, the correlation between my judgments and the overall department judgment is in the high point nines. You know, there are one or two points where it might be different, but, you know, that's over over 30 years. So it's it, the department has been very, very good. That. So, that's, you know, it was great. That was great. 
So, uh, Lee, so I want to uh, push you a little bit on this. So, I mean, okay, so it's true. Maybe, maybe that... Maybe that one episode wasn't appropriately titled, but it's well, we like had a question actually... mark. I want to point out there was a question mark in the title, so it wasn't that definitive. It was navel gazing, though, right? It was. It really was about like what is it like to have this job, and I I think you could justifiably go in and think that this was an episode about like academia writ large, right? Should we be doing higher ed in the way that we are in North America? Sorry, I'm interrupting, Mickey. Go on. No, no. I mean, so but I mean, what I want though is it's clear that you have some idea. You actually, to some extent, at least part of you, is is actually against academia as it currently stands. And I want to hear your argument. I want to hear your thesis. Right. Okay. So um, uh, I would say I have five or six main points, and I'm just going to sort of walk through them um, without going into any detail justifying it. We can just sort of have a discussion. So um, I would say social psych in particular, to varying degrees, the other social sciences and humanities as well are a mess. And you know there, you know social psych is a mess of the replication crisis. Um, you know, that's now about 10 years old. It is sort of amazing that that all came to a head that long ago, but it did. And I would say we are probably somewhat better on methods and practices than we were 10 years ago. And I would say we're much worse on the politics. Um, uh, much worse on the on the politics, and that that doesn't matter if you don't do work on a politicized topic, but it does matter a lot if you do a work if do work on politicized topics, which the social sciences and humanities do a lot of. So uh, I'm curious. I mean, I don't disagree with you, um, but I'm curious as to why you think we are worse, like you know, in the in the in the past yeah. ten years, because you've been talking about. Um, UL as well and other, uh, many others about uh, there being you know academia being too liberal and social and psychology in general being too liberal and we want to like diversify a little bit in in terms of viewpoint diversity but you're saying now like that message is not only has it not been heard yeah um, it's gone worse so by by, by how, what do you mean by that yeah so uh, you know I don't I wouldn't go so far as to say it hasn't been heard I think it's been heard um, but. There's probably a, a, a confluence of several things that have made the politics worse. So I would there, there, there's no like single survey tracking the political representation in social psych or psychology, you know, every year for the last ten years. But by connecting dots from disparate surveys, uh, it looks pretty clear to me that the political skew has gotten worse and worse. That basically what we're doing is we're in the middle of a slow-moving purge of everyone who is, you know, to the right of the Democratic center, the Democratic Party center. Um, uh, and even the center is kind of shaky at this point. Uh, and when, when I say center, I mean the center of the Democratic Party. I'm not talking about centrist center. center. So... Um, why is that important? So that's, you know, that's important for all sorts of reasons. When you deal with politicized topics, um, people left, I mean, to the right of the mainstream, you know, Democrat or British labor type, type really think differently. They think differently. They know different things. Um, they have a different understanding of the world that is really, really interesting and useful if you want to understand people, um, especially on politicized topics. And it's just most, for all practical, for most practical purposes, it's just gone. Um, 
what's so that's one that's a piece of it. Another piece is the bubble becomes more and more insular. Uh, you know, it's like everyone is surrounded by by people who think politically more or less. You know, there's some diversity in thought. In thought, I don't want to overstate that. But the but but social psych and the really the social sciences and humanities have become political bubbles. And in a political bubble, everybody kind of reverberates off each other. They you know these sort of assumptions, you know, opinions, values that are so widely shared by everyone you walk, you know, you, you run into, become social reality. And so if anyone comes along and says, not so fast, you know, you know the literature on polarization and, and, and partisanship. Anyone who says that, you know, the, the immediate reaction is, is, you know, this person is either stupid, immoral, or acting in bad faith. And, you know, I'm not a conservative. I actually ran a small indivisible group in 2017. We were small. One of the things we accomplished, when I say we, we were part of a much larger effort, was in 2017, there was the uh, move. So the Republicans controlled the House and the Senate. Uh, Trump was in office. And there was a move to overturn Obamacare, to, to you know, to, to, to get rid of Obamacare. Um, and the only way that that was going to be prevented was if um, uh, at least a handful of Republican congressmen f flipped. And that's what was we, you know, we, along with lots of other groups working on this, my, I live in, at the time, I, uh, the congressman from where I live was sort of a sort of centrist Republican. And we've, he was one of the votes that flipped. And that, that is what saved Obamacare. So, so, so then why, you know, so you might say, well, okay, well, you're on the left, so why, why do you care so much about it? B because data, as far as I can tell, data, you know, the world, the, we're dealing with human psychology. What human psychology is like does not simply map onto left or right. And so sometimes the data from studies are going to be consistent with things that are kind of conducive to beliefs held by people on the right. If the field has nothing but people on now, now one of the other dysfunctions here is when a field is as ours is almost entirely left, the radicals, the extreme left, becomes a much larger proportion of the you know the population of social psychologists than in the general population. And you could just there's probably multiple things, but even if it was just randomly selected, there's going to be you know two or three times as many radicals, which, you know, when you're talking two or three times as many radicals, if, I don't know, if eight to 10% of the uh, uh, population at large in the surveys kind of saying like this are really kind of far left, you double that, now you have like 20%, 15, 20%. And that's assuming no further self-selection. And I suspect there is, I suspect the number is actually higher than that. So, so, when the data come through confirming some sort of right-wing narrative, like just the risk of all hell breaking loose becomes very, very high. That's number one, becomes harder to get the stuff published. You know, and people have now started justifying it. You know, part of the rhetoric that has arisen over the last 10 years or so, people have made arguments like this for a long time, said everyone is biased. We all, you know, you know it, there's no such thing as objectivity. And you can use that in either of two ways. You can use that to say, yeah, the biases really are a problem. And so we need to work very hard to limit 
the role of our biases in the way in which we conduct and interpret our research. That's one thing you could do. The other thing you could do is say, everyone is biased. My biases are right. And so I am going to inflict my biases on the data because I'm right. And uh, there just seems, you know, when, when everybody's on the left, that seems like a much more plausible thing, you know, much more reasonable thing to do. So that just, so, so ha if there were, imagine an alternative, counterfactual alternative world in which there were, you know, a su substantial, I don't know, 20, 25% actual conservatives, another like 20, 30% moderates, the field was still 40, 50, 60% left, there would be the Overton window of things acceptable in social psych would be larger. So that's why I think it's important, even if you're on the left, if you are a serious science, scientist where you want the data to be able to speak on politicized topics, you should want more, more people you know, left of sort of the mid-left in the field. I mean, it's the right of the mid-left in the field, even though I'm not. Yeah, so I was I was looking back at uh, the paper that Yoris Lammers and I wrote, and I think it was 2012, where we talked about the the politics of social psychology, right? And, and we talk about liberals and conservatives in a way that that now almost seems quaint, in that it seems like now the conflicts are all between people who voted Democratic all their lives, and so it's like the left versus the more left. Um, but I wonder about. You know, so this is going to be like maybe a little ill-formed because I haven't really thought this through. I, I don't know if you guys followed. There's an actress who was on the Star Wars Disney show, Gina something. Uh, and, and they recently fired her for having, you know, what are kind of like garden variety Republican beliefs these days. So like, you know, some anti-mask stuff, some light election fraud stuff. On the one hand, you could be like, yeah, it's bad to fire people for having kind of normal Republican beliefs. Then you might also be like, those normal Republican <laughs> beliefs are fucking crazy. <laughs> crazy right <laughs> so so i mean like when we're talking about like conservatives and, and just to be clear i'm on the side of like look we we need a diversity of kind of intellectual viewpoints in order to talk about these like complicated social issues in a better way you have too many people who agree with each other you get these blind spots as a field but like who are they right there i mean i don't want the QAnon people i don't want the election fraud people right <laughs> So I completely agree with that, right? I mean, the rules of science apply to everybody. They apply to everybody. So you need, you know, the, the, your, your cl truth claims need to be based on evidence. If they are based on anything other than evidence, they need to be flagged as speculation or hypotheses or, or theory, but you don't really know it's true until you get the evidence. The rules of logic apply. Um, and so uh, uh, claims, beliefs that are outside of those standards don't belong in a scientific field. And, you know, there's Stephen Jay Gould um, had one of the best uh, definitions of a scientific fact that I've ever seen. I'm not sure I can quote it completely, but this looks pretty close. A scientific fact is something that has been established so clearly that it would be perverse to believe, to withhold provisional assent. That's what it is. It would be perverse to withhold provisional assent. Now, you know, that's kind of a mouthful, but one, you got to have a lot of evidence for it. So you can't just make stuff up. That's number one. And, you know, it's a very strong standard, which means that just because, you know, somebody published three studies in JPSP, 
that doesn't mean I have to take everything the study claims as like now it's God's truth, because we know there are huge swaths of uncertainty surrounding every aspect of social psychological research. I mean, for most of our career, certainly you and me, Mickey, I mean, you're all, I think you're a little younger than us, that if it was published, it was treated as if it was now a fact. And for you to gainsay the publication, it's like you are a science denier. And now we know that that is like not the case, that so much of the older literature is not reliable, that it's, you know, I'm not saying it's all unreliable, and I'm not saying none of it should be believed. I am saying that until extensive replication work is done, it's sort of hard to know which ones to believe. So, you know, so it's not a, just because it's published in JPSP or Nature or Science, that does not make it a scientific fact. It is not perverse to withhold provisional assent. And this, we actually, in a couple of papers, we kind of um, wrote up this sort of corollary to, um, to Gould's definition of a scientific fact to sort of capture the extensive uncertainty surrounding so much of what we do. And the corollary is, if it would not be perverse to withhold, if it is not so well established that it would be perverse to withhold provisional assent, then it is not an established scientific fact. The relevance there, well, it is, it is the who are the conservatives versus, um, uh, you know, do you want to bring nutcase people into the field? And, you know, that's my, of course, you don't want to bring people into the field who deny, who perversely deny mountains of well-established evidence. That's like, you know, criteria, you know, it's not even criteria 101. It's criteria one for, uh, you know, kind of going to graduate school and being allowed out of graduate school. So everybody has to play by the same rules of science as everybody else. So, I mean, that's kind of, you know, there, there's both a winnowing process, the, the who do you attract to the field, and there's a training aspect to that. So that, to me, that's how, now, so, so that's kind of how you solve the problem of making sure you, the field is now not peppered with QAnon election fraud nutcases. It doesn't address the question, well, how do you attract these people? But the thing is, we know how to attract these people because the field has been working on increasing its demographic diversity for 30 years. And, you know, it, it's been hit or miss, but it, it has learned a lot about what works and what doesn't. So the, the if the field decided it wanted to be more open to um, uh, uh, politically diverse uh, uh to the training of, politi of more politically diverse social psychologists, it knows what it needs to do, and it's basically just choosing not to do that. Like, I, I really had this feeling that when, you know, we originally wrote those papers and people started talking about this, like, there was a lot of people who would, at least in theory, say, like, no, that's a really good point. You know, like, we can't study these things well unless we have um, people who have different points of view and we're prone to these blind spots. And I, I even had people tell me this is something that I'm going to be looking at when I recruit graduate students. I'm going to want a lab that isn't ideologically uniform, right? And, and that, you know, um, made me hopeful um, that things were going to go in a direction that that I liked and and then that obviously did not happen and now we've very much gone in the opposite direction right and and so I'm thinking about you know what happened um Trump is one obvious answer right uh when Obama was president it's much easier to say like yeah you know like conservatives not so bad um and, and another might be 
this has to do with Trump too, but this idea of, and this is very US centric, obviously. So apologies to the international listeners. Um, in the US, it, I, I get the feeling that there's been this like linking of like expertise and listening to the experts and paying attention to the science and all of that stuff with people on the left. And that's consequently, like a mirror image anti-expertise thing with people on the right, right? And in that, you know, I mean, you could say maybe that's historically always been there in one way or another, like intellectuals always kind of leaned left, for example, but I think it's definitely accelerated, right? And and so I wonder what you, Lee, think about, like, what's responsible? Like, right, there there does seem to be like this kind of sea change that's happened in, in as far as like how much people think that we should even care about that we are ideologically kind of, you know, to the left of the median voter, certainly in the U S to the left of the median Democrat, probably. Um, like I, I think previously people would have said that's a problem and now people don't think so. Um, it, and you know, if it is just Trump, then, well, you know, maybe now that Biden's president, things kind of swing back in the other direction. Uh, what do you think? Academia is organized into more or less self-serving guilds. That's what most of our professional organizations are. Uh, and I don't think this is restricted to social psych or psychology. So from a standpoint of we're all in this together, one hand washes the other, you know, having, you know, less friction and more cooperation, and you help me, I, you know, scrub your back, you scrub my back, you know, I fund your grant, you fund my grant, I publish your paper, you publish my, we all get published papers, now we're, you know, we all get our tenure and promotion and raises and grants, and we're all happy campers. From that sort of self-serving, self-promotional standpoint, there's a lot of incentives to keep it that way. Like, why would anybody want to not do that? But that is not... That is not a truth-seeking system, <laughs> right? That, that is essentially a, you know, professional-serving, self-serving. The professional organizations cater to the self-serving interests of the, of the members of the association. So, so and, and it's not just associations. It's the journals, it's, it's the grant, the, you know, the grant panels, it's everything. It's, it's just across the board. So... That works well from the professional standpoint of the constituents, but risks, and I think is on the verge of spiraling out of all, you know, sort of, I was gonna, I was gonna overstate this. So, so I don't, I don't, what I was gonna say is spiraling out of all, you know, deservingness of credibility. That's probably overstated, I, I, you know, but you really need scientific expertise in the disciplines to be able to distinguish what is more versus less deserving of credibility. And from a normal person standpoint, from a non-professional standpoint, even a lay intelligent person, maybe you're an MBA or a doctor, or, you know, maybe you're whatever, a bus driver or a taxi driver, um, there are very few reasons to trust academia on politicized issues. Yeah. So, so, so there, I, I actually I, I thought of this the other day. Um, I listened to uh, the the Rationally Speaking podcast hosted by uh, Julia Galef. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar. Um, strongly endorse that podcast. She's great. She has interesting guests. 
and she had a guest on and somehow I forget who the guest was. Uh, this topic came up where they were like, well, there's social science research that says this. And she's like, yeah, unfortunately, you know, social science on a politicized topic. I've basically stopped believing it. And the guest was like, yeah, same. Right. And it's like, these, <laughs> these are smart, open-minded people. They're not politically political hacks they're like you know i don't know maybe i i don't know julia's politics leftish libertarian i if, if i had to guess right but these are the sorts of people who ought to be you know open at least to the kinds of evidence that we're bringing and if they are just immediately writing us off because they're like well you know they're that's just ideological axe grinding that that is a problem for our credibility right if we've lost the julias of the world I, so i mean that i find that incredibly disconcerting because it seems like and I blame this entirely on the U.S. As in a Canadian, I can be smug about it, but um, like everything is political now, right? You know, it's it, it's it seems like less and less of our space, of our intellectual space, is actually free of politics. Um, so if that's a general stance that like smart people are taking, that's you know that's really really bad. Um, so yeah, I find that disappointing, but but deserve it. I think I think really deserved. Yeah. I mean, and there is really a, I was going to say a simple solution. Nothing's ever simple. The solutions to these complex things are never simple. But colloquially speaking, there's a simple solution. And that is have more people right on the center, right of center in the field, and now conduct research in bipartisan teams. So, so I've actually, uh, the, the, there's a group out of Princeton, the, the Network Contagion Research Institute, which is studying this sort of um, doing a lot of work on sort of cons machine learning, big data, social media, on these sort of conspiracy theories, is QAnon and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and uh, the sort of organization of sort of the radical socialist uh, groups that were sparking a lot of the violence in Portland and Seattle. This is like their bread and potatoes. And, and meat and potatoes, and they um, they work in bipartisan teams. So um, uh, uh, they're just there. There are people who themselves have done work for both Democrats and Republicans. That they're sometimes part of the team. Sometimes they're donors who have done. And then um, there are people who have been in either intelligence officers who have worked in either Democratic or Republicans, who actually have expertise on these topics. And then, you know, the sort of core research types. And it's just been a great experience. And so when this group puts out a report, it's regular social science in some sense that it just because they put out a report doesn't mean it's true. You know, there's this uncertainty surrounding the methods and the conclusions, but it removes or at least limits this easy ability to delegitimize the group as just a bunch of partisan hacks, because it's not just a bunch of partisan hacks. You have people from both sides of the spectrum all endorsing, yeah, QAnon is really dangerous. It's not just a silly bunch of nutcases sort of obsessing about pedophiles. This is actually corrosive to sort of democratic norms in the democratic process. So that may be believed or not believed, but it just can't easily be dismissed and delegitimized in the same way that you're describing this sort of Julie Galef sort of easy, I mean, deep skepticism bordering on, you know, justified cynicism about work that comes out of social science on politicized topics. Yeah, I guess, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking, man, the irony here is that over this exact same time period, we've had 
um, the, you know, methods revolution, right? And obviously these things are kind of going in opposite directions. And it sounds like you think, well, actually, uh, we're worse off in a lot of ways. But listen, I've, uh, I'm long out of beer and I need a second <laughs> one. So uh, should we take a quick break? Talking on the phone every night 6pm which time zone yours or mine Ain't gonna worry where you are, who you with Let's just agree, this is it Portland, Maine I don't know where that is Bags in the car, keep it running. I won't pretend that I won't miss this. But Portland, Maine, I don't know where that is. And I don't wanna know. I don't wanna know. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod, where you can DM us. We both check that account. If you'd rather send us an email, our show email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Finally, our website is fourbeers.com, where you can listen to any of our episodes and drop us a note there as well if you like. Um, if you're enjoying the show, please just take a moment to rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice. It just helps other people find us and also. So uh, we just enjoy reading reviews. Uh, Mickey, have I left anything out? You have not, but uh, just keep on another plug for, for reviews. I think we've got a bunch of reviews the past like two or three weeks. So we always uh, appreciate those. It helps others find us and uh, we it's, it boosts our ego. So uh, if you like us, uh, write us a review. Yes. Uh, really, the most important part is that it makes us feel good about ourselves, which, you know, we're sorely in need of. At, uh, at any and all times. So we, we very much appreciate anybody who takes the, the time to do that. Uh, shall we talk about what we're drinking in round two? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I should ask Lee because Lee is like awaiting uh, to drink his beer. So, so what, what, do you, what do you got? Yeah, what do you got, Lee? Well, so this is a gift beer. So my former student, Rachel Rubenstein, is now um, first year, tenure track assistant professor at Towson College, Towson University in, in Maryland. Um, and I guess there's a micro brew, you know, brew pub type place right near she, where she lives. And the last time she came back to visit, visit, she brought me sort of a medley of these micro brew beers. So this is from the Balt County Brewing Company, I guess, Baltimore, you know, it's kind of in that area. Uh, and it's just an American lager. I've never had it before. And so this will be my inaugural, uh, you know, tasting of Rachel Rubenstein's, uh, local micro brew. Nice. Well, thank you, Rachel, for contributing indirectly to our show. Mickey, what are you drinking? So I've got uh, it's something called the White Picket Fence. It's a blended Fodor Saison, which who knows what that means. There's a bunch of words that I just mentioned. Uh, Ken DeMa Ken we have to get Ken DeMarie on this show so he can just like yell at us for how bad we are about the beer. I'm sure he knows what this is. Um, this is from Bellwood Brewery, 5.6%. I think I've had it once before. Um, I think, uh, yeah, whatever, it, it's beer. <laughs> nice and uh yeah i'm i'm still in the bourbon i accidentally 
I poured myself a lot of bourbon earlier. So I'm still working my way through that. It's a little, my hand slipped a little. It's like kind of a problem, but uh, but I'm okay. I'm hanging in there, just you know, doing what I can here. You're still, um, you're still holding tight with your beer boycott, though. I am. I am. For now, I am. Maybe, maybe next month the boycott will be lifted. We'll see. <laughs> so, so uh, Lee, I feel like we got through your first reason to be against academia. Um, and you said you had five. Yeah. Well, we did sort of, you know, there's the social psych is a mess. The societies are guilds. Like, we kind of pretend they're scientific societies, but they're really, strike me, more as professional guilds. And then... They, they, they uh, I mean, let me go. I'll go through the final three. These are, these are good enough. There's probably more, but the whole thing can be thought of as a Ponzi scheme, as an intellectual Ponzi scheme. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, the last five years or so, you have this rise of what's called cancel culture, sort of blacklisting and witch hunting, hunting which doesn't exist. Had, yeah, I know, right? It doesn't exist. And then maybe it's part of that, maybe it's not. You have academics both concretely and, you know, from a, 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 um, promoting abstract principles that are basically the abandonment of academic freedom. So this is just, you know, I mean, the, you, put the, you put the sort of political bias, the sort of general mess, the sort of professional self-serving guild together with this sort of Ponzi scheme, cancel culture, and the abandonment of academic freedom. And it's there are a lot of reasons to be against academia. It, it is very different than it was 30 years ago, and not just demographically. I, just, just to push on the, the one of the points there about academics who are uh, rallying to limit academic freedoms, um, I'm assuming by that you mean... Um, you know, there are some academics who are suggesting that, uh, you know, um, making sure the reduction of harm should be the, maybe one of our first values um, or doing good or not doing bad. And that, you know, if, if, if speech um, inflicts harm, then then it should be restricted. Is that what you're referring to? Well, kind of. I mean, it's more extreme than that. I mean, have you have you guys seen the uh, Princeton petition? Uh, you know, hundreds of. I mean, I think it was Princetonians from a wide variety of roles. It was faculty, graduate students, students, alumni. Um, in the you know, in the aftermath of the Floyd killing, in the you know, the the wave of social justice protest over the summer, wrote up a sort of this long petition that it, uh, of demands on the Princeton administration to address issues of racial justice and injustice. And some of it is, you know, pretty reasonable, you know, sort of various programs and stuff. Uh, but there was one particularly toxic thing in there, in my opinion. And that was a call for a committee of faculty to evaluate anything that a, a Princeton faculty member would submit for publication or, or, or funding for racism. So there would be this board of oversight um, that would have authority basically to, you know, prevent anything it deemed of, uh, as being racist. And it, of course, there was no definition of what that meant, you know. And so, uh, you know, the, many, many of us, and I would include myself among them, saw this as, as uh, you know, uh, essentially an author authoritarian institution 
of, of you know, sort of big brother-like uh, censorship, sort of creating a, a, a formal structure to engage in that kind of censorship. So Yeah, okay. I, I remember this now. And I, I guess my question is like, how seriously should we take that? Because as I remember then when, you know, reporters later contacted some of the signatories and were like, this seems kind of crazy, right? They were like, oh yeah, that's never going to happen. Or I just signed on because I wanted to show I supported our like black students and faculty or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, there was that good, it, it was in, I mean, what you're, what it sounds to me like you're describing is there was a very good Atlantic article that kind of did that, that interview, interviewed a lot of the faculty and, you know, I mean, hundreds of people signed it. The number of people in that article was a handful. So that's ambiguous. Um, it is not, my point is not that the, you know, the, the racist, the anti-racist censorship committee is going to be instituted. But it is that so many people signed on to this thing advocating it. So that's, I don't want to overstate this one thing. If it was only this one thing, it'd be okay. You know, there's like weird stuff going on at Princeton. But over and above that, and you guys know about this. You've talked about some of this stuff. You have the rise of retraction by mob without identifying data fraud or data error. So there are like other reasons that are, you know, the Al Shebley paper is the most recent example, but I have a long list of these papers. I mean, I have an ongoing blog. It's not only about retracted papers. It's about um, academics targeted for some sort of punishment by other academics for expressing ideas. Now, the punishment could be everything from firing to deplatforming, you know, and there's sort of everything in between. And the list is, you know, it's a long list. It's, it, it's about two dozen people and it's an incomplete list. I need to update it with more and stuff. And it's for the ideas. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not for sexual harassment. It is not for making up data. You know, it's for promoting, it's sometimes not even promoting an idea. It might be for having gone on the wrong podcast or worked with the wrong group. So you have this sort of, you know, like a mirror image of 1950s era McCarthy blacklisting. And it's not full blacklisting. Right? Blacklisting, people couldn't get work. So we're not, you know, people have been fired and maybe some people are blacklisted, but it's not at the level of the McCarthy era blacklisting, but it has a family resemblance, but with the script completely flipped. So it's not, you know, so you have the Princeton uh, petition. There's actually an editorial that appeared in the Harvard Crimson about five or six years ago, uh, explicitly advocating for the abandonment of academic freedom in exchange for social justice. So it's not just one thing. It's like, all, you know, you have the concrete cases of people, you know, I, I mean, I, I prefer the phrase targeted for punishment than, you know, canceled. I mean, canceled is like, well, you know, what does that even mean, right? But these people are targeted for punishment for their ideas. You have this sort of open letter and it, I, there's the Princeton open letter. There are several other of these kinds of open letters targeting people usually. Um, and then you have real cases of people successfully being sanctioned in some way because they said the wrong thing. Um. So, I mean, I, I totally I, I see the exact same things you're seeing, and I also am bothered by all these things. But I'm just going to play devil's advocate a little bit. Um, and that is, so just a couple couple of thoughts. First, um, man, shit happened in, 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 at the end of May, right? People went crazy. I think, you know, the, the society went crazy. And I think for a period of, I don't know, three, four, five months, like 
it was like a, a, a locomotive and you, you had to get out of the way and just like, you know, and, and, and yeah, and duck, exactly, or run away or get off the tracks or whatever the, the metaphor is. Um, uh, and, you know, people were upset and angry and, 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 you know, in lots of, you know, there's an overreaction. Okay, so and and I think things have calmed down. Maybe not quite to where we want it to be, but certainly it's not it's not June now. Um, so that's thought number one. Um, thought number two is, and again, I'm the same way as you, Lee, in the in this regard. I, I'm seeing the same things. I worry about the same things. But then, you know, I speak to other more sensible people than myself, um, including UL, despite the shit I give him. Um, and he's like, well, should we be judging a thing in this case, academia, by? the worst examples and you you have your 24 examples i'm sure you can double that triple that right but there are what four 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 thousand plus schools in 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 uh in the u.s alone and there's bound to be crazy stuff you know exceptional stuff but maybe like we shouldn't you know judge the entire edifice by it's like it's 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 weakest you know uh bricks or whatever um yeah yeah so I don't really disagree with that, but I see the problems created by this whole movement of things, you know, these petitions, these cancellation type attacks as far more influential than the couple of dozen cases that, that have occurred. Because, you know, God knows how many thousands or tens of thousands of faculty there are. But, you know, heuristically, so I'm pulling this number out of my ear, but metaphorically, I think this is something like, right, and maybe even it's under, an underestimate. For every person actually fired for some transgression, a transgression involving ideas, you know, so for the so for making the wrong kind of claim, a thousand scientists have learned not to study that. Or to, they could study it, but just not reach that conclusion. Because who wants to be fired? It's just not worth it. I mean, you, Mickey, you were, I, it might have been on your IDW a, a episode. I, I forget. And you might have done this in a couple of episodes. You know, you were like, and this was just so, it was a thing of beauty. It was like, you know, I'm a, I'm a full professor. I probably can't be fired, but, and I'm paraphrasing, but, but it was something like this. But if I had, ha- you know, scores and hundreds of people coming after me, it would just be really, really uncomfortable and unpleasant. And I, I, who wants to deal with that? I don't want to have to deal with that. And who, and that's the right question. Who wants to deal with that? And the answer to that is hardly anyone. Because who would want it? And there's like millions of things to study. So why study anything potentially fraught right if if you're if you're an honest researcher then and you're you're genuinely seeking the truth you know you might find an an answer that's acceptable to the field but you might not so it's like you know if assuming you don't really know what you're going to find it's roughly 50 in the absence of any other estimate it's 50-50 why have a 50% chance of finding something that's going to put you in the ethical bind of you know, I'm going to suppress this and like, I'm, you know, I, I actually believe in promoting the truth. So now, you know, really, am I really going to su- suppress this? Well, but if I don't suppress it, God knows who's going to come after me. Who, who, I, I, you know, I'll study, some, I'll study, you know, the, the, you know, the role of emotional expression in, 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 in romantic relationships. 
you know. Soon thou too will be politicized. Uh, well, yeah, I know, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, yeah, that is true. I mean, I, I totally, I mean, you know, I, like I said, I was playing devil's advocate just today without mentioning any names. I was, I was, I was counseling a student who um, is outspoken in, in the political arena on occasion. And I'm ashamed to say I advised her to take the cowardly route. I was like, if you want to be in this business, um, you know, and you really care about the truth, then don't maybe not study these issues um, because, you know, you're going to get into yourself into trouble. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I really respect you. I mean, that was what you, 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 I think the quote was, I'm a coward. And I just respect you so much for having said that. And I don't actually think you were a coward. I actually think you were incredibly courageous for <laughs> laying it all out that way. I think you were absolutely right. And I, so. Lee, you should come on more often. You're making me feel so good here. <laughs> Poor UL. <laughs> UL, you're not a coward. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks. Hey, look, Yoel following on Heights talk, you know, broke open the whole sort of political bias thing with that paper. So um, Yoel's not a coward. He did that as a junior faculty too, right? So, but now, now you made me lose my train. UL is UL is as <laughs> tough as nails, man. I, I. I actually think the URL is way tougher than I am. He's got a thicker skin than I do about these things. He doesn't care. Mickey's, yeah, no, you're, you're, you're surprisingly sensitive. Yeah. 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 So, so, I, you know, the last six months or so, I've been running a seminar. First it was a grad class. Now it's just like an open discussion group on sort of radicalization, authoritarianism, protest, and dissent. And we've really done sort of a deep dive into a lot of this stuff, historical stuff, as well as like the modern social science lit on some of the stuff. And dissent under sort of, you know, intolerance, proto-authoritarian type regimes is, you know, it's like, yeah, they're heroes, you know, Solzhenitsyn is a hero and stuff. But it's, you know, most of those guys got sent to the gulags. You know, there's this great, there's this great essay called The Kolmogorov Option. If you just Google it, it'll come right up. Kolmogorov, the Kolmogorov Smirnov alternative to the Chi-Square. It was a Soviet era statistician. Um, who was under tons of pressure to sort of collaborate with the, you know, with the authorities and sort of, you know, turn in some of his colleagues. And he mostly resisted it. He didn't completely resist it. Um, and and it's, it, it's just a great essay that captures the dilemma of attempting to cleave to the truth when the personal risks of doing so are unbelievably high. Not that they're, I'm not drawing a comparison to, you know, social psychology in 2021 to the Soviet Union in 1935. Like, I, I'm, they're not comparable. But I would, will never fault anybody for choosing not to study things that could you know, put their job at risk. So I, I think you probably gave that student good advice and, and I'm not sure I would give the person different advice. So yeah. I mean, I mean it would depend on the student and stuff. So, right. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, being on a couple of now fronts of dissent, yeah, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, I think all of us have been on that side in terms of like open science. I don't think so much anymore. Now it seems like it's almost the mainstream to some extent, or at least the old open science. <laughs> open science now, I don't know what that is. Um, it seems uh, it seems also captured by uh, some of the same forces we've just been talking about earlier. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, it seems to me like 
certainly there's for for early career people there's the kind of rational concern that you might not get a job you might not get a grant um you're gonna have trouble publishing that work and so on but then for the people who are you know full professors who theoretically don't have anything to fear this is really an illustration of the power of informal social sanctions which is as a field something that we ought to know about right so it's, it's just really uncomfortable to be that person who's arguing who's you know like the skunk at the party like and, and most people <laughs> rather wouldn't be you know they'll just right they'll just yeah. save themselves the trouble well that's a great great like i think that's so perfect for you lee because i feel like you are the skunk of social psychology at least, <laughs> at least on twitter so i mean I, I think i've referred to you a couple times in our podcast you know as saying we need we need not, i don't always agree with yeah. you online yeah, i find myself yeah. disagreeing you know yeah. every once in a while um but like i'm glad you're there you know causing shit but like you know i don't want to be you though i don't want to be like the one doing it so so what is it like you know being that person uh, who you obviously you're, you're self-aware you know that you're that yeah, you're yeah. you know causing a stir well so so most of the time that I cause a stir I'm really not trying to cause a stir I mean I'm really not interested in making trouble for trouble's sake and I've I've never been interested in that I you know it I may be ham-handed and inept and undiplomatic at times. Uh, people sometimes fault me for my sort of tone or style, and I'm probably guilty as charged there. It, it could be that someone um, who was more sort of skilled in sort of tact and diplomacy might accomplish some of the same things I seek to more effectively but I, but so that, that you know, I, so I, you know, that's prob all that's probably true. But what I see myself doing, what, what, what I start out doing almost always is trying to get to the truth of the matter. You know, whether it's, you know, saying, look, you know, there's this claim in such and such a study and there's no justification for this claim in the paper. Now, if you're the author of that paper, that's probably going to piss you off. But, uh, you know. It's like, well, how are we going to talk about this? And, you know, then there's the dilemma. You're on Twitter. Do you tag the person? Do you not tag the person? Right. And, you know, I've moved away from tagging the person, although sometimes I still do, you know, and I usually underestimate how pissed off they're going to get, actually. I, you know, so if I ask for a source for a, I mean, this happened really recently. I asked for a source I, for a I, claim. I saw that. You saw that. And all hell broke loose. It's like, Okay, okay. Uh, you know, as far as I could tell, science is supposed to be based on facts and like I, what I thought I was doing was fact checking. And, you know, because there was no reference, like you don't know what you don't know, right? So, you know, I had a small concern that I personally was being misrepresented. I had a a, a large curiosity that like, maybe there's stuff going on that I don't know about, you know, maybe, right. And, or there was the possibility that maybe someone I do know about said something somewhere that was more extreme than I thought they had said. I mean, I just didn't, I just want, okay, so who said what and where does this come from? Sorry. 
you know, ha ha ha, you know, I, I, I could find it if I wanted to, but I, I, don't, I just don't want to. It's like, right. what? This is right. how we conduct our science? Are you kidding? I mean, so, I, I, so this interaction that you're referring to, uh, so I saw it, and I'm not going to lie. So, so, Lee, you do this thing, and I've told you this before, and, and I feel I can be honest with you. So you do like, uh, you know, instead in, in, in of responding in like 240 characters, you take 10 tweets to, 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 to make the point. So it feels a bit like you're being piled on, but I get it, it's your style. I mean, I don't, yeah. I'm not offended by it, but I can see how other people would be bothered. Yeah. Um, but that's whatever. But I, I, for the first time, I learned that it's now okay um, to say that you're not allowed to ask a question of someone mm-hmm. who is not to your race or yeah. Um, yeah. even your gender, maybe. Yeah. I, I was very troubled by that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was yeah, kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, on the first thing, there's the whole notifications mentioned. So if I respond to a tweet with a six or eight or 10 tweet thread, it's like, yeah, I don't want to deal with this. This is just too much. It's like, that's not what I'm on Twitter for. And I understand that. I accept that. That's fine. You don't have to be on Twitter for it. But, but even that, there is, and this may be part of what I get in trouble for too. If I'm having a Twitter exchange with you, Mickey, just to make this concrete, this is not, it's on Twitter. It's not only between you and me. It is, and it is not only about me persuading you. It's about us laying out our respective views for the rest of the world, who may, or you know, whoever's paying attention to see, actually. So th- there is that element. And to me, that is quintessential open science for the rest of the world to be able to see the thinking that underlies what ends up as the conclusions that we reach in our scientific research. So it may piss you off, you know, not you, I mean, it may piss you yeah. off personally. I think we've, we've done tete a tete a little bit, not recently, but I think- About a few years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but, but, so it's not just for you. So that's just on that part. But yeah, you know, you can't question certain people based on, I mean, this is, when I talk about sort of the radicals, and I don't know that this is a majority of social psychology, but this is a very sort of radical social justice view of how the world should work. And, you know, is it 50% of social, I mean, you know, the social psychologists active on Twitter probably don't represent the field, but they might represent the vanguard of the field, actually. So we may, the field writ large, if I had to predict, is probably moving in that direction, actually even if they're not a majority at the moment. Yeah, so is this just a weird like recurrence of the idea that it's just like impolitic to to push too hard or to criticize too much? There's like an acceptable lane of criticism. If you stay in it, that's fine. But if you veer outside that, then people get unhappy, right? And this reminds me of the beginning of the replication crisis. You know, you're, these are like shameless little bullies, second stringers. And the idea is you're, people were angry, man. They were like viscerally angry because it just isn't done to say your finding is maybe a false positive, right? I can argue with your theory, but like once I start saying, oh, maybe that finding isn't right, boy, that's, that, that's not considered to be uh, polite. Right. And, and so I, I think what you said about a guild and these rules that we all agree to, that's interesting. Like we rewrote them, I think, uh, for a time. Um, and, and now maybe we're rewriting them again. Right. So now it's okay to say, oh, I think that's a false positive, but it may not be okay to criticize somebody uh, if, for example, they're untenured and you're a full professor, or if they're black and you're white, or if they're a woman and you're a man. 
Right. So, you know, this, this part of the conversation reminds me of a section in 1984, which I reread re recently, about a year ago. And in 1984, the, you know, the main character is Winston, Winston Smith, who kind of is a mid-tier functionary that's part of the whole big brother authoritarian totalitarian complex becomes disaffected and begins to have doubts and suspicions, begins to rebel in small sort of secret kind of ways. Um, and as part of that, unbeknownst to him, he's ensnared by a government operative who is supposedly bringing him into the resistance. As part of the resistance, he reads like the book of the resistance. The book of the resistance talks about history um, as the struggle of power, the struggle for power. It's just a relentless struggle for power. So there is the power, the, in any given society, there is whatever the powerful ruling elite, and they will do anything they can to maintain their power. There are other groups that at some point become strong enough to overthrow the powerful elite, and when they do, they overthrow the elite, and they institute their variation on the exact same oppressive system as the prior did. It's just that the beneficiaries are now a different group and that this has been the cycle of history over and over and over and over again. That's, that's the, this. And, you know, I, I think we're kind of in, it's not quite as totalitarian as all that, but yes, we had the, a, a, a different group sort of, in charge of the way social psychology was run, you know, in the 1980s and 90s and early 2000s, the, the simultaneously more open science, tighter methods, but also greater social justice activism sort of core has taken over from, you know, the people who were in charge when we were younger, there's Susan Fisk and Dan Gilbert and Bob Zients and that whole group. Um, uh, and they're now in charge, and they're now basically in charge. They're in charge of the, the halls of power. So you get both things. You do get this elevation of methods, but don't cross on social justice. If you cross them on social justice, you get the same types of reactions that threaten them as threatened the old guard with new, uh, with uh, uh, you know, the new methods and measures, saying, "Well, maybe your stuff, you know, doesn't really replicate, and no one should believe it." I mean, so I, I hear you, but I, I, I feel Lee that this is like the my worst nightmare, or this is like a version of reality that I'm worried about. But I don't actually think it's true on two fronts. On two fronts, okay, uh, good and bad. Okay, the the good uh, or the the bad is I don't think the open science people are in charge of anything. Okay, I was just at SPSP, um, and again, I don't want to mention any names, but like, you know, it, I, you know, there was barely or any or no talk of open science methods reforms, nothing. Which maybe that means, hey, we've all adopted it, but like hearing like people openly talking, pushing back against some of the reforms, like we're in twenty twenty one here, um, and that that was happening. So I don't again, I I don't think the open science people are in charge at all. Um, and, and so that's for bad and, and, you know, given your perspective and, and my perspective and, uh, as well, good is like, I don't know if like the, the, again, the vanguard, the, what we're seeing on Twitter 
if those folks are in charge either yet of the of the social justice stuff, let's say, in our, of our societies. Um, I, we see it, and maybe one day they will be, um, but I think they're, it's still too young. Um, uh, it's mostly young ECRs, early career researchers who are talking about this stuff and really kind of uh, adopt it. So I really have to remind myself and remind you and, and anyone else, like Twitter is not the real world. Um, same with academia. I, I don't even think it's the vanguard. It's a particular slice of academia. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair, actually. I mean, I, you know, I, I went to the 1984 thing to describe a process, not to say that that's exactly where we are. So I, I think that's all, everything you just said is fair. So I think I'm just going to stop there because I think that's that's basically right. Okay, so we've we've kept you for quite a while already. <laughs> um, I, I like to give Mickey, you know, one last question because I know he's usually got something that he's dying to ask. So Mickey, do you want to, you know, jump in there? Oh gosh, I'm not sure I have a final question actually. <laughs> oh no. Well, we well, covered a is, lot of ground. This so. is very awkward. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I feel. Uh, we've talked about like open science. We've talked about, you know, politics. Um, you know, the, you know, I think we've talked about like fears of the way the field is and uh, ideas of what the field could be. So, so, you know, maybe let's look at, you know, you know, in a, in a rosy manner about what you, an ideal field in the future in 20 years from now, how will, how will things look? How will things be different? Well, I mean, this, you, you asked two questions in one question. You asked what, you know, what's the ideal field and how will things be different? So I am right. So, so I think let's end on the, I like the ideal. I think we kind of have given a flavor of what, where we think it's going. So the, the, it, to me, the, the, the ideal field, the principle is really simple, which is why like, I was totally enamored of the open science movement when it first came on board. And that is, we should be a field that emphasizes truth-seeking. That's it, that's the number one priority. Everything else is downstream from that, including social justice. If, what, I mean, this sort of poster child for failed, for, for activism built on essentially flawed scientific basis are implicit bias trainings. I mean, the whole implicit bias area is a mess. So what a shock that the trainings do nothing. The, you know, the evidence is that they do nothing. Now, this doesn't mean you can't have some sort of bias training or diversity training that actually does something. That's a, a different issue than these implicit bias trainings. So even social justice, Improving opportunities, improving, uh, reducing gaps, and equalizing distributions, and all—all all that has to be built on truth. I, you know, I don't know how you can do this. Not, I mean, you can do it without truth, and maybe you'll be right, and maybe you won't. But you sort of hit or miss, and maybe you got lucky, and you actually built it on something that's actually true. But as a scientific field, the so you know, one of the things I have here—we don't really talk about this a whole lot—is. Success in our field is, is not, academia and social science is fundamentally not a truth-seeking enter enterprise. It is a social evaluation-seeking enterprise. You want approval from your colleagues, right? This, you need letters of recommendation to get into grad school. You need you know, outside letters to get tenure and promotions. Grant panels are evaluations. Peer review is evaluations. None of this is objective reality. It's just like everybody's opinions. Now, it's opinions that may be hinged to reality to some degree, but the prime mover are opinions. Now, like how else might it be different? 
as, I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but as far as I can tell, the COVID vaccines were never published in peer-reviewed journals. They just work. <laughs> they were tested and they work. No one needed peer-reviewed science to produce a vaccine that actually worked. And how do you know? You run the damn studies and either people are infected or they're not. I mean, it's like it, there's a reality criteria that doesn't matter, that is independent of people's evaluations. So in my ideal field, that's what truth seeking would be about. We would identify like real world metrics against which we could evaluate the validity of our research. And then we would know whether we were producing garbage or something actually true. And well, I was gonna say true and meaningful. Meaningful is like a whole nother level up, but it has to start with being true. <laughs> okay, I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, Lee, uh, this has been great. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks so much, Lee. And also, I, I, I love the way you ended it. I mean, one of my heroes is uh, Alice Drager. And in her book, she talks exactly about that, about truth being, it should be the number one value that we, if you care about social justice, you know, you have to care about truth. Um, so thanks so much, Lee. Uh, it was it was wacky and funny and uh, <laughs> it went in all different kinds of directions. And, and it was great having you on. Uh, it was great being on. Thanks for having me on. It was great, guys. <laughs>